Good afternoon, everyone. I began a series of sermons on the subject of the Messiah and the throne of David. In part one, I covered in summary fashion a number of scriptures concerning the throne of David and or his dynasty and how it was to be a perpetual dynasty with his descendants reigning over some portion of the tribes of Israel, if not all of them, in perpetuity. In part two, I discussed controversies concerning whether David actually existed. There are scholars, sometimes called minimalists, who seek to discredit the Bible at every turn. People like this have been around for many generations, and another term for them might be ignoramuses because they are willingly ignorant of things that may be known. As we read in Romans 1 and verse 28, Romans 1 and verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And there are many who have not wanted to retain God in their knowledge, and so they have descended into darkness and ignorance when they really didn't have to. They they could have known a lot more than they do, but and the world could know a lot more than it does in terms of the general population if the truth, the, the many truths that have been revealed or made available were actually propagated and taught effectively. In today's sermon, I want to examine the record concerning the kingdom established under David's tenure as king. Minimalists such as Israeli archaeologist Israel Finkelstein and Neil Silberman describe David's era as, quote, a local dynasty of rustic tribal chiefs. A local dynasty of rustic tribal chiefs. And I'm not sure that they even fully admit that David existed, but that's their idea of what uh, the dynasty was at that time, or what they believed to be that time, according to their ideas about dating and so forth. In uh, the book on the reliability of the Old Testament, K.A. Kitchen, or Kenneth Kitchen is his first name, who is no minimalist, refers to the empire developed during the reigns of David and Solomon as a mini empire, a mini empire. In other words, a tiny empire or a small empire. And he is viewing the empire established under David and inherited by Solomon in terms of the land area encompassed by it in the Middle East in contrast to the Assyrian, the Neo-Babylonian and Persian empires. However, the extent and dominance, or the extent of the dominance, I should say, and influence of the empire of David and Solomon may actually have been vastly greater than historians have generally understood. Halley's Bible Handbook comments, quote, under David, the kingdom of Israel almost overnight became not a world empire, but perhaps the most powerful single kingdom on earth at that time. So according to Halley's handbook, 
it was not a world empire, but perhaps the most powerful single kingdom on earth at that time. By contrast, Stephen Collins maintains, as he writes in his book, The Lost Ten Tribes of Israel Found, where he says, after David made the Aramaeans his vassals and probably in concert with those vassals, subjugated Assyria, uh, Assyria and Mesopotamia, David was not just king of Israel and Judah, he was an emperor over nations. He was the dominant ruler of the known world and Israel had become an ancient superpower. So you've got ideas about David's kingdom all the way from being non-existent, and there are those scholars who claim David did not even exist, or um, at best, uh, small uh, or local dynasty of rustic tribal chiefs, all the way from there to being a superpower in empire. Most historians acknowledge that under David's reign, Israel developed into an empire. At least there are a number of historians that I've read that acknowledge that. <clears throat> and, uh, and almost all of the, uh, if not every one of the uh, atlases that I've consulted, uh, they show the extent of his empire and so forth. And so most historians, certainly not all of them probably, but most of them, believe that indeed David did rule and uh, his uh, reign, during his reign, his uh, kingdom developed into an empire. One of the historical accounts sums up David's accomplishments as follows, and this is, this is from a, a book, A Survey of Israel's History by Leon J. Wood, revised by David O'Brien. And from this book, it says, quote, in contrast to the rule of Saul, David's reign was one of unification and development of the kingdom. He brought the tribes together, established an efficient government, organized the priesthood, and maintained an army that scarcely lost a battle. He inherited a divided, war-torn land, and when he died, left an empire. David was not only a strong king, in contrast to his predecessor, he was the strongest king Israel ever had. He was the measure of others to be a king like David came to be the highest accolade a successor could have, end quote. If David's kingdom became an empire, which history confirms, how did that happen? And what was the extent and nature of it? As we proceed, you can decide for yourself whether it should be called a mini empire or something more significant. Under Joshua with, Joshua, with God's help, the Israelites had been successful in subduing the Canaanites after they had entered the land under Joshua's leadership. But the job was not complete. 
by the time Joshua reached the end of his life. Joshua, at the end of his life, warned the Israelites not to intermarry with the Canaanites and adopt their customs, but to drive them out, lest they be a snare and a thorn in the sight of the Israelite nation God had chosen for a particular purpose. We read in Joshua 23, beginning with verse 1, Joshua 23 and verse 1, now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age, and Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you, for the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I've cut off as far as the great sea westward. In other words, from the Jordan to the Mediterranean. And the Lord your God will expel them from you before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess the land as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, and lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. Therefore, take careful head, uh, heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God, or else if indeed you go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them and go into them and they to you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from the, this good land which the Lord your God has given to you. So God laid out very clearly, and this was not the only occasion in which similar words were spoken to the people of Israel that were spoken many times beginning back at the time of Moses. But uh, they were warned of what would happen if they um, intermarried with the Canaanite people and adopted their religious customs and forsook God and his laws. So Joshua died, and what followed was the period of the judges, when judges ruled in Israel. Actually, the tribes, more or less, were ruled through their elders and tribal leaders, but there were judges that God sent on occasion to um, sort of direct the, the nation in the way God wanted them to go. But... Uh, 
during the period of, of the judges, Israel did not finish the job of driving out the Canaanites as they had been commanded to do. And so we read in Judges 1 and verse 19, Judges 1 and verse 19, so the Lord was with Judah and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And then we read in Judges 1 and verse 27, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong, in other words, when they could have driven them out, when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but they did not completely drive them out. So when they had the ability, the strength to drive them out, they didn't do it. Going on, it says, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them, nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alab, Akzib, Helba, Aphek, or uh, Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley, and the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Harris, in Ajalon, in Shaalbim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. So in some cases, they simply did not have the strength to drive the Canaanites out. But when they did gain the strength to do so, they did not do it. The fact that they put them under tribute tells us that they had the, the power to drive them out had they been of a mind to do so. But they were more interested in them paying them tribute. In Judges chapter 2, <clears throat> Judges chapter 2, we see what the result of this sin was, this rebellion against God in not driving the Canaanites out as they had been told. In Judges chapter 2 and verse 1, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out 
before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath, Harris, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. And when all the that generation who had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil inside of the Lord and served the Baals, or the Baals, as it could be pronounced. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal or Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They quickly turned from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying command the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. And then we read in Judges chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, Judges 3 and verse 1, Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan, 
This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it, namely five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath, and they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons and they served their gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. So they degenerated into the worship of Baal or Baal and uh, his consorts which was a uh, base type of idolatrous worship where they indulged in all kinds of perverted and illicit sex practices and uh, even uh, practiced human sacrifice as a part of their religion. And this is what they were doing. As a result of this disobedience from the time Israel entered Canaan, all through the time of the judges, they occupied only a portion of the land, mostly in the hills, the valleys, and plains being left to various Canaanite tribes. So the tribes of Israel were confined mostly to the hill country. Everything else was occupied by, their, by these other peoples. By the time of Saul, the king the, the, who had become king after Israel demanded a king, and they demanded a king because they were being oppressed and threatened by their enemies, and especially at that time by the Philistines. And by Saul's time, the Philistines were dominant in much of Western Palestine and had at the Battle of Gilboa defeated Israel and occupied a portion of the hill country. And it was this same battle in which Saul and his sons were killed. Gilboa is a mountain range to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And I believe, uh, I believe it was in the uh, area allotted to Manasseh, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, it, we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, 1 Chronicles 10 and verse 1, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, uh, 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 I guess is how it's pronounced, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw, saw, saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. 
So Saul and his three sons died and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in their valley, in the valley saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So even a portion of the hill country was abandoned by Israel at that time and they were replaced by Philistines. So this was the situation at the time that Saul died. And after he had been killed, David was anointed king by the leaders of the tribe of Judah. Now God had chosen David to become the king after Saul long before this, but now that Saul was dead, David was recognized by the leaders of Judah as their king, and they inaugurated him almost immediately after the news was received that Saul had died. However, it would be seven years before all the tribes of Israel would recognize David as their king. Abner, the commander of Saul's army, instead recognized Saul's son Ishbosheth as king over the tribes of Israel. But Ishbosheth was a weak and ineffectual ruler, and the real power in the kingdom belonged to Abner, the commander of the army. And so we read in 2 Samuel 2 and verse 10, 2 Samuel 2 and verse 10, only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron, which was in the territory of Judah, uh, the time, and the time that king, David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So only the tribe of Judah followed David for seven and a half years. And during that time, a period of conflict ensued between the supporters of David and the supporters of Ishbosheth. As we read in 2 Samuel 3 and verse 1, 2 Samuel 3 and verse 1, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Finally, after being accused of an impropriety, apparently falsely, by Ishbosheth, Abner, the captain of his army, transferred his loyalty to David. Soon after, Abner himself was murdered by Joab, who was a captain of the host which actually was more like we, what we would call a general who commanded David's army. Evidently, Joab not only saw Abner as a threat to his office, but Abner had, in a battle, killed one of his brothers. So he got even by murdering Abner. And this greatly displeased David David made it plain that he was not responsible for Abner's murder and did not approve of it. Before David died, he charged Solomon, his successor, with the task of avenging innocent blood that Joab had shed, and especially the blood of Abner. 
So Solomon ordered Joab to be slain, saying, as we read in uh, 1 Kings 2, beginning with verse 31, 1 Kings 2 and verse 31, so Solomon said, Strike him down and bury him that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. So it was specifically for these two murders that Joab was executed after Solomon um, assumed the throne as the sole ruler of Israel as far as human rulers are concerned. We read in 2 Samuel 5, beginning with verse 1, 2 Samuel 5 and verse 1, that after Abner had been killed, it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are, bone, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall, be shep you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. So David entered into a covenant with the other tribes of Israel, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now, you might notice that uh, throughout, <clears throat> throughout the uh, existence of Israel, the tribes of Israel and Palestine, uh, there are often references to Israel and Judah. The, uh, the northern tribes were led by Ephraim and Manasseh, and uh, Jacob had uh, specifically directed that his name be named upon Ephraim and Manasseh. In the south, Judah was the leading tribe, and it was uh, the tribe through which the scepter was to be passed on. But Israel and Judah, even though they were unified under David, were, uh, were in a sense uh, viewed as separate entities. We see that reflected often in the reading of the Old Testament and what happened in the history of those people. But anyway, David, after the death of 
Abner uh, became the ruler, the king over all the tribes of Israel in Palestine. Now, I might mention in passing, I don't have this in my notes, but I might mention in passing, not all of the people of Israel, even at that time, were in Palestine or the land of Canaan. Some had migrated to other parts of the world, and uh, <clears throat> whether they recognized David as their king or not, I don't know. I don't know of any historical sources that uh, say how they regarded David at that time but it could be that maybe some of them even recognized him as the king over Israel as well. It's something maybe we'll have to ask God when he's available for us to ask. Anyway, shortly afterward, David assaulted the Jebusite stronghold, the fortress city, Jerusalem, and took the city and made it his capital. Now this was a very uh, astute uh, move politically because Hebron, as I said earlier, was in the area allotted to Judah. And had he made that his capital, that probably would not have pleased the other tribes. Uh, and if he had located the capital in the northern part of Israel. That would not have pleased the tribe of Judah and, and uh, other uh, of the southern tribes, uh, particularly Benjamin, perhaps. But uh, first of all, Jerusalem was not an Israelite city until David took it, it had remained in the possession of the Jebusites all of that time. And it was also right on the border between Benjamin and, and the northern tribes. And uh, <clears throat> so it was, uh, you might say, in the middle, in a, in a sort of a neutral area between the southern tribes identifying with Judah and the northern tribes identifying with Ephraim and Manasseh. So it was a politically neutral site, so to speak. It was also uh, very well defended. It was a fortress even during the period that the Jebusites uh, inhabited it, or, or uh, let's say controlled it. They, evidently, they continued to live there, many of them afterward, but, but uh, David made it his capital. Uh, and a short time later, evidently, Hiram, king of Tyre, who evidently held sway over the other cities along the Mediterranean coast north of Israel in what came to be called Phoenicia, made an alliance with David. And so we read in 2 Samuel 5, beginning with verse 10, 2 Samuel 5, verse 10, so David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. <clears throat> then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel 
and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. End quote. Tyre was a port city and the capital of a maritime trading empire that ranged through the Mediterranean and into the Atlantic and far beyond. Israel had long had a presence at sea themselves, as we read in Judges 5, verse 17, there are other indications also of seaborne voyages involving Israelites long before the time of David. It's likely that Tyre and her sister cities and Israel had in fact been involved in trade for a long time. Uh, Tyre was a major importer of, of uh, food, food products from Israel, for example. But they had uh, very likely been involved in trading with one another for a long time and may have even cooperated in ocean-going voyages, possibly even before the time of Solomon, when we know for certain that they did do that very thing. Subsequ subsequently, the Philistines who, as we've seen, had long been a thorn in the side of Israel, sought to kill David. After inquiring of God, David went to battle with the Philistines in two battles that resulted in victory for him. And the Philistines were subdued and driven out of the hill country and their territory greatly restricted along the coastal area of southern Palestine. And David said, at that time, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 20, David said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water, like a dam bursting, so to speak. And uh, it's likely that David's uh, army was not near as large as the Philistine armies at that time. He had, this was early in his uh, administration and he had not really had time to consolidate his military strength. But uh, he defeated the Philistines anyway. <clears throat> as David consolidated his rule, the Israelites gained control of areas in Palestine that they had not occupied successfully before. As we read in the book I mentioned earlier, a survey of Israel's history, it says, in describing this, it says, until now, Israelites had been confined mostly to the hills with the Philistines and Canaanites holding the better lowlands. But this situation changed under David. The implication of scripture is that the Canaanite holdings along the Mediterranean to the north across the Esdraelon, Valley and through the Jordan Valley were now brought under Israelite control. The Philistines were not driven from the plains of uh, Philistia in Israel's southwest, but they were confined to a much restricted territory. So, to a large extent, what God had told Israel to do in the first place, they finally accomplished by driving the Canaanites out of the lowland areas and inhabiting those areas. Not all of them were drawn out, uh, were driven out. For example, uh, Sidon continued to be a uh, Canaanite city 
and other, there were other areas where there were Canaanites dwelling as well. But uh, at least they had done, to a large extent, during the early part of David's reign, what they had been commanded to do in subduing the land. After subduing the Philistines, David had to deal with Moab. Now, Moab was a nation to the east of uh, Israel, across the Dead Sea. And uh, it doesn't say what the particular provocation was that caused David to fight the Moabites, but they had long provoked Israel. For example, at the time of Moses, Balak, the king of Moab, had hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. But Balaam had prophesied, as we read in Numbers 24 and verse 17, when, when uh, he pronounced his uh, statement, which was a prophecy, and God would not allow him to curse the, the Israelites, what he said instead was, Numbers 24, verse 17, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, a scepter is a symbol of royal authority or kingship or rulership. A scepter shall arise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. So what David did was actually prophesied by Balaam. And David did batter the brow of Moab and destroy their capacity to uh, resist or cause trouble. And Moab became a vassal state, having to pay tribute to Israel under David. And after that, David subdued Edom, which was another country to the east, further south, and uh, they also became a vassal state. And with, with uh, those victories, as we read in the survey of Israel's history, these two victories gave David sovereignty on the east and south of the Dead Sea to the Gulf of Aqaba, an important waterway for trade. And then, as time went on, in a series of battles, David fought the Syrians or Aramaeans. You may read in historical accounts of Aramaeans fighting the Assyrians or other kingdoms. The word translated Syrians in the King James Bible is Aram. Where you read Syrians in the King James or other English translations, the Hebrew word is Aram, and it's referring to the Aramaeans or Aramaeans, who were, in fact, relatives of the Israelites. Rebekah, Isaac's wife, was an Aramaean. The area of the Aramaeans extended to the Euphrates and beyond. In subduing the Aramaeans or Syrians, David gained control of territory extending to the Euphrates River, far to the north, and also gained 
influence beyond into Mesopotamia, as we will discuss more about later. Ammon was another kingdom to the east of the Dead Sea, north of Moab. And when the king of Ammon died, David sent a legation to extend comfort to Hanun, the deceased king's son. When these counselors or these uh, uh, representatives arrived, representatives uh, from David arrived, Hanan's counselors accused David of ulterior motives for sending them. And so we read in First uh, Chronicles 19, beginning in the first First uh, Chronicles 19 and verse four. Therefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved them, and cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. Then some went and told David about the men, and he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, Hanan and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Syrian Ma'aka, and from Zoba which was another, I believe, another Syrian or uh, Aramean area. So they hired for themselves 32,000 chariots, 32,000 chariots, a massive force. And these came from a number of different countries round about. And they did this for the paltry sum of a thousand talents of silver, which to us would be a lot of money, but divided among all those nations, it wasn't much. And uh, so they hired for themselves 32,000 chariots with the king of Ma'aka and his people who came and encamped for before uh, Medeba, also the people of Ammon, gathered together from their cities and came to battle. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array before the gate of the city. And the kings who had come were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw, now notice here that the uh, kings who had uh, agreed to fight for Ammon uh, came out to watch the battle. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array before the Syrians and the rest of the people. He put under the command of Abishai, his brother, and they set themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you will help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Now, 
this massive force greatly outnumbered the, the uh, forces of Israel in this battle because, it, as I said, it involved a number of nations. And uh, so they divided their forces in the way that was described here. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before them, uh, before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai, his brother, and entered the city. So Joab went to Jerusalem. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river. These would be other Arameans beyond the Euphrates. And Shofak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, the Syrian army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan and came upon them and set up in battle array against them so that when David had set up in battle array against the Syrians, they fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians. So here in this one battle, 47,000 of the enemy were killed, and this is just the uh, Syrians, and killed uh, Shafak, Shafak, the commander of the army, and when the servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. So Syria, or the Aramean uh, people made peace with David and became his servants. So the Syrians were not willing to help the people of Ammon anymore because they were now under uh, David's um, rule, you might say. They had become his servants and his allies, and he was actually uh, administering uh, the territory of the Arameans up to the border, up to the uh, Euphrates River after that occurred. Now, very likely, Psalm 83 gives a more complete list of adversaries who entered into this coalition at the time to crush Israel. All of these participants were willing to join in, as I mentioned, for a relatively paltry amount of silver, indicating that they were really looking for an excuse to put an end to Israel's expanding power. And so we read in Psalm 83, beginning with verse 1, do not keep silent, O God, do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, Come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent, they form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, 
Gebel, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia with, its, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria who has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. They've helped the children of Lot. Now, Ammon was one of the sons of Lot. And uh, so the Ammonites were descendants of Lot. Moab was the second son of Lot. And their country was, as I said, adjacent to the country of the Ammonites. They were the children of Lot, Ammon and Moab. It also mentions here that the inhabitants of Tyre were part of this uh, mercenary army who had been hired by the Ammonites. And it's possible that some of the people were, of Tyre were involved as mercenaries despite their king's friendship with David. But evidently Hiram was not, uh, was not uh, disposed to approve of that because he remained... He was a friend of David before and remained a friend after that. But also it says here that Assyria was a part of this confederation. Now Assyria was, before David's time, a very powerful country. It was even more powerful later in history, but it was, it was uh, more or less dominant in the... In, in the uh, area between the two rivers in Mesopotamia and it joined in this attack on Israel. Stephen Collins in the book I mentioned earlier explains the circumstances as follows, quote, David quickly realized that this conflict involved far more than a revolt by the little nation of Ammon. It was actually an attempt to destroy Israel's army and national power and to prevent, prevent it from supplanting Assyria as the preeminent nation in the ancient world. A number of nations involved in the alliance were subject people who were likely eager to free themselves from Israel's domination. Remember, some of these countries had been subdued by King David and were placed under tribute as uh, satellite nations or part of his empire. Now, historical records confirm that Assyria was weak and relatively powerless during the era of David and Solomon, unlike the era before and the era following. Assyria did not become strong again until after the breakup of the Israelite kingdom following the death of Solomon. These battles solidified Israelite control over the area from the border of Egypt south to the Gulf of Aqaba, the areas east of the Jordan and north to the Euphrates. And with the subjugation of the Aramaeans, no doubt Israelite influence extended beyond the Euphrates to frustrate Assyrian ambitions. History records that during the reign of David, Assyria was squeezed by the Aramaeans to its narrowest recorded limits. The Aramaeans, as they are called, who did the squeezing may in fact have included the Israelites 
who had been victorious over both the Assyrians and the Aramaeans. The Aramaeans spoke a Semitic language closely related to Hebrew. Aramaeans and Israelites spoke dialects of what was in effect a common language. They were people closely related by blood, as I mentioned earlier. And the Aramaeans became David's servants or subject to him after they had defeated, had been defeated in battle. And so when history tells us that the Aramaeans pressed east into Assyria and squeezed the Assyrians into a relatively a much more confined area, it could have included Israelites as well as Aramaeans or Syrians. David did not start out with an ambition to build an empire. He didn't assume the throne and say to himself, well, now I'm going to build my empire. That's not the way it happened. In uh, a survey of Israel's history, we read this. It says, with the home country firmly consolidated and controlled and with an effective army available, David was in a position to wage war on foreign soil as need arose. There is no suggestion that he intentionally sought conquest, however, or that he gave himself to creating an empire. For the most part, he simply entered into battle situations as they arose and sought to win them. His victories did result in the country's borders continually enlarging. In other words, when Israel was threatened by its neighbors, David went to war to keep Israel from being subjugated or disturbed, their peace disturbed, and that's how his empire grew. And the end result was an empire greater than any other empire that we know of existing on the earth during David's lifetime. The Bible tells us that in making preparations for the temple, David accumulated bronze in abundance beyond measure, as we read in 1 Chronicles 22 and verse 3, that he accumulated bronze in abundance beyond measure. Now, bronze is usually an alloy of copper and tin. Where would David have obtained such a great quantity of bronze? Because it would have to be dug out of the earth, the copper and the tin. Dr. Barry Fell has written several books documenting evidence of transoceanic voyages and commerce between Europe and Western Asia and North America going back to the time of David and before. Around Lake Superior, along the border of the United States and Canada, is evidence of extensive mining of copper during the era of David. And uh, some of the mines are believed to have been worked to exhaustion during the time that David reigned. 
Those who have investigated and studied this do not know what happened to the copper. There's no evidence of it being used in North America as far as anyone knows. But there is abundant evidence of an Israelite presence in North America in the first millennium BC. Dr. Fells writes in a book, Bronze Age America, quote, since no large numbers of copper artifacts have been recovered from American archeological sites, they, that is mineralo mineralogists, conclude that the missing metal may have been shipped overseas. May have been shipped overseas, end quote. During the era of David and Solomon, Israel operated the largest smelting installations in the ancient east at Zion Geber in southern Israel on the shore of the Gulf of Aqaba. It is described in a book by Werner Keller, The Bible is History, described as a proper up-to-date blast furnace built in accordance with a principle that celebrated its resurrection in modern in industry a century ago as the Bessemer system. The Bessemer system, which is used nowadays to, to process me, uh, metal uh, ore and make it into uh, steel or whatever other metal is being processed. Nothing like this smelter existed anywhere else in the Fertile Crescent of the ancient Near East, as far as I know, nowhere else in the world for that matter. Collins suggests that the massive amount of metal ore mined in North America at the time was shipped in vessels operated by Israeli and Tyrian crews to be smelted in Israel's giant smelting facility. Colin sums up David's reign as follows, quote, David united Israel into a cohesive unit and with God's favor transformed it into an ancient superpower. The ancient Israelites were not an obscure people in the ancient world, as many have assumed. At the time of David's death, they were the dominant power on earth with huge military resources. And uh, <clears throat> I might... It, uh, interject uh, here that uh, when David numbered the uh, men of Israel who could be used for um, military purposes, there were over one and a half million, and not all of them were counted because some of the tribes were not counted. So David had an army of uh, at his uh, available to him just among the Israelite tribes of more than one and a half million and that does not include others that he could have uh, enlisted from the various other territories that he controlled. So he had powerful military resources available. Going on it says lordship over many vassal nations and advanced industrial technology control of both overland and maritime trade routes. Israel was smack in the middle of the trade routes through the Fertile Crescent, 
And these were the most important trade routes in the world at that time. And they were controlled by Israel. Also, they were involved with the, uh, what, what later came to be called the Phoenicians in maritime trade and controlling maritime uh, sea lanes. So this was not just a tiny little nation in, in, in Palestine, this was the dominant power in uh, the world at that time. And it was not a power limited even to the Middle East or to the Near East, it was worldwide in scope, literally worldwide, because uh, later on, and perhaps even to some extent during the time of David, but later they were making uh, long-range sea voyages all over the face of the earth. And as I said, there's evidence of uh, Israelite uh, presence at that time in North America and other places abroad. So when Halley's Bible Handbook says they were not a, a, a world empire, they were in reality exactly that by the end of David's life. Goes on to say here, they had an advanced industrial technology control of both overland and maritime trade routes and a close alliance with the dominant maritime power of that time. The historical narratives of the Bible describe not insignificant events which impacted only a few people in ancient Palestine." End quote. David was faithful to God. He made mistakes, but overall he was faithful to God. His example of faithfulness was a positive influence for the whole nation. And as a result, not only was he blessed, but Israel was blessed as never before during David's reign. We read in, from a, a book called A Historical Survey of the Old Testament by Eugene Merrill. He makes this comment, quote, there seems to be almost no mention of idolatrous practices in Israel. He's speaking of David's uh, time as king. Almost no mention of idolatrous practices in Israel. And we can conclude that the pious king had pretty well purged such things from the realm. Because of his faithfulness, God said to David through Nathan the prophet, and I have been with you wherever you went, cutting off before you all those who were against you. And I will make your name great, like the name of the greatest ones of the earth. 